Welcome to another episode of Cohen's Corner. This episode is very special as we have Mets beat writer for MLB.com, Anthony DeComo, joining us. Anthony, thank you so much for being with us. How are you? I'm good. How are you guys? Doing well, doing well. We're good. We're good. We're, we're trying to recover from a really rough week of Mets baseball, so we thought talking to you might be a good way to like break some of that down, talk about some other Mets-related stuff, and kind of get ourselves set for the rest of the season. So we really appreciate you coming on. I guess we're going to start off something that we were wondering since we often ask our guests how they kind of got into baseball, how they got into being Mets fans. But for you, I kind of wanted to know how you first got into sports writing. I know you've been covering the Mets since 2007, I believe, for MLB.com, which is you know obviously quite the generation of, of Mets baseball. So I'm wondering, though, like what kind of first inspired you to want to work in this field? Yeah, I, I, I definitely got the proper introduction to to being a Mets writer in that my first year I was an intern in 2007 and I think any Mets fan knows what happened in 2007 so I was kind of thrown right into that but um you know I, I think it's kind of a typical story for a lot of sports writers which is that I was I was a huge baseball fan growing up loved it knew pretty early on that uh, you know my own baseball career wasn't going to go that far so you look for different ways to get into it for me I was always much more interested in the baseball than I was necessarily in being a writer or, or even the journalism aspect. But then as, as, as I grew and I went through school and all that, I, I really became interested in that aspect and I became interested in being a journalist and being a sports writer. So that's just kind of how it grew. I went to college for it. Um, I think I knew pretty early on what I wanted to do. Yeah, and then I kind of got lucky, right place, right time, um, meeting the right people. And I was lucky enough to, to join MLB.com as an intern in 2007 and I've literally never left, which I know is pretty rare in this day and age, but probably speaks to the fact that I really enjoy doing this. It's, it's a super fun job. Yeah, I guess, I guess 2007 kind of prepared you for the worst. I mean, that's kind of- you want to stay after that, then thrown props right, to you. Thrown right <laughs> totally into the honest. fire. Like that's, that's nuts. That's some season to kind of get your feet wet, I guess. And as an intern, you know, I, I was looking to make my mark. I was looking for any opportunities. So I was, I was so- happy that I got to cover a good team and I was going to be able to cover the playoffs and I was going to be able to do all this stuff. I remember convincing my boss down the stretch that if the Mets were to play a one game playoff with, with the Phillies, which was on the table, that they would let me, you know, expense a trip down to Philadelphia, which as a 22 year old to cover that game would have been amazing. And then obviously it didn't happen. And they lost game 162, which was, was just, just a stunning thing to be in attendance for. Yeah, you kind of get thrown into the fire of, of that particular Mets, um, Mets psychosis, I guess, for lack of a better word, right off the bat. And uh, a warranted psychosis, given all the things that have happened that happened that year. Not that this year is like, obviously, that was a huge collapse and it was way late in the season. But I mean, this this year kind of has a similar feel to it, just that they had a lead in the National League East. They looked like they should be able to run away with it. And now they're, what, in third place? So what's your kind of take on what's been going on recently with the team and where you think the season should go from here? Yeah, it's I would say it's a little dissimilar to 2007. I always... You know, 2007, I always, I remember distinctly this quote in the post-game clubhouse after game 162 from Moises Alou. And he said something to the effect of, this was a done deal in spring training. We were a playoff team. We were going to, to go places. So it's something we didn't even consider until after that. I don't think that was the case with this team. This was obviously a good team coming into the year. It was a team that you could probably pencil in for the playoffs, but it wasn't like, this juggernaut. You still had the Braves. You still had 
maybe the Phillies and the Nationals that were going to make some noise. But then, yeah, you April and May, all of these things go wrong for this team, and yet they're still sitting there three and a half, four games in first place, and you just know that as soon as the lineup gets healthy, these guys are going to go on a run. They're probably going to win, you know, 15 of 20 at one point and start to pull away from these other teams that all looked every bit, of, if not more, flawed. And then it just didn't happen. So that's been the most stunning thing to me is that, you know, one through eight in the lineup that pretty much everyone, with the exception of, I guess, maybe Nimmo and, and Alonzo, are having bad seasons. You know, it's, it's, it's been stunning to see guys with those track records kind of just collectively not come through the way that they're accustomed to coming through. Uh, this is a team that on paper is so much better than they've played. And I think everyone knows that, which is why it's been so disappointing to Mets fans, because this is the team that did and, and frankly still does have a lot of potential. I, I feel like we're talking about it now as if the season's over. The season's not over. Yeah. <laughs> There's still eight weeks to go and true. a lot can happen. But yeah, they certainly have not lived up to their potential quite yet. Yeah, it's interesting you talk about like, these players with all these track records and people expected them to be better. And I don't know, maybe that's just like pessimistically me thinking about it, but yes, these individual players have had good track records, but also it's been like several years of the same kind of core of players. And I guess to this point, we haven't really seen a lot of success from this group. And so we kind of thought, I guess, going into, I don't know, I guess just for me, their best month statistically so far was May when everyone was injured. I mean, if you look at like month by month, I think the Mets were you know like 17 and nine or something in May. And that's when they had like Cameron Maben batting third and that was their best month. So it kind of makes you wonder like, what is the formula for winning here? Because we talk, we've heard a lot about this great clubhouse chemistry, which is great. But at the end of the day, like clubhouse chemistry does create wins, but I also feel like, you know, good players create more wins. And so I guess I'm just wondering Um, Jake and I were kind of thinking about how the Mets approached the trade deadline and how this group of players that everyone loves generally, they're all like fan favorites and like well-liked by the fan base, just hasn't, when they all got healthy, that's kind of when the downward spiral started. And I know they had some more injuries with Lindor and DeGrom, but I guess, how do you kind of approach the fact that this group, they didn't really change that much at the deadline, even though we felt like they could have been performing better? Yeah. And to your point on the chemistry, I'm really... I've never been a huge believer in that stuff. I, I, the most chemistry teams that you'll see are the ones that win. And I think it's because they win when you win, when you have talented players and you win, it just creates that sort of atmosphere naturally. So I, 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 you know, the three of us could go in a room and we could, uh, you know, be on a baseball team and we might have great chemistry, but we're not going to win very many major league baseball games. I, I don't, I don't know how good you guys are at baseball. I know I'm not very good. I've, I've never played the sport. So I played <laughs> catch. Like I could maybe catch the ball. I could be a first baseman where I don't have to throw it all, but I could maybe catch. Right. I need a designated hitter for me because I don't know how to hit. That's where I would be. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the point is if you go out there and you win, you're going to have that good chemistry. But regarding your question about the trade deadline, I, I, didn't expect them to do much position player wise. I did expect them to do more than they did pitching wise to just kind of shore up their depth and and maybe even get some more upside than they did. Um, But position player wise, my thought was the same thought that the front office really had, which was, again, these are guys with, with track records. And I know maybe Elizabeth, you dispute that a little bit, but you look at Jeff McNeil, you look at Michael Conforto, um, you look at Dom Smith. These are all guys who have had either all-star seasons or all-star caliber seasons. You know, one through eight, really, this is, this is a team that should 
produce to a level where maybe they're not the Dodgers, maybe they're not the best offensive team in the league, but they should do more than enough to hold their own and then have the pitching to carry them through and win. So I think you look at the offense going into the trade deadline and you say, well, okay, we can find a second baseman or we can find a third baseman or we can find a left fielder, but we're taking at bats away if we do that from a McNeil or from JD Davis, whose track record is pretty good at the big league level or from Don Smith, whoever it is, somebody's going to lose at bats. And I think the thought was that eventually these guys do have these track records and they will come around. And now we're a couple of weeks out from the trade deadline and it's, it still hasn't happened. And this lineup has been whole and healthy with the exception of Lindor for quite a while now. And I think the expectation from myself and from a lot of people around the team was that, you know, give it a couple of weeks and it'll come around. And we've given it more than a couple of weeks now and it hasn't come around. So I think more than anything, it's almost a bafflement that that hasn't happened. Yeah, I agree with you. And touching on that about how they, it was kind of surprising that they were going after position players. I mean, Javi Baez in there, I think the Mets have what won two games since he's come over. I mean, and he's played a big role in both of them. What was your initial reaction when they traded for him? Cause obviously you said you didn't expect them to really go the position player route. Like what, were you really shocked when they got him? What, what was kind of going through your head in that moment? I wasn't shocked because I know they had been kicking that idea around for at least a few days leading up to that. And it did make sense in the context of, I don't think this is a trade the Mets would have made had Francisco Lindor been healthy, but knowing that he was going to miss at least a few more weeks and, and honestly, who knows when he ultimately comes back, but at the very least he was going to miss another say three weeks. You have a bona fide starting shortstop now that you can plug in. And then when he does come back, you know, maybe someone else is hurt. But if not, you can find ways to play him. You can play him at second base. You can move him around. You can move Jeff McNeil around. So it, it works as a roster fit for the team. And I, and I like the idea that there was a little bit of star power there, that there was a guy who could do multiple things well. Obviously, a great fielder. Obviously, a lot of power. But we've also seen kind of that double-edged sword of, of who Javi Baez is. And that, as you mentioned, they've won two games since they've had him. He's played probably the biggest role in both of those games. And yet he's also played big roles in, in some of the losses that they've had that that over five with five strikeouts definitely sticks out from the other day. So that is what you're going to get with Javi Baez. Um, I don't think I was shocked that they got him, but I think when you look at the context of the trade deadline, as I said earlier, I was more surprised that they didn't go bigger on the pitching side, just knowing so many of the, of the depth issues that they've had this year. Because I guess my thinking was, you know, a lot of people were talking about how, oh, well, they didn't find out about DeGrom's like inflammation till two hours before the deadline. But what kind of what we were saying and what my thought at the time was, well, Jacob DeGrom was like already injured for two weeks before that. So he was already kind of in uncertainty. You know, it's not like he got injured that day. So that's why I was kind of surprised. And I know we had kind of heard them that they were like kicking the tires on Kent Maeda and obviously Burrios got traded earlier in the day. So, you know, there were maybe not as many options out there as we would have liked to see. I mean, I, I guess it just didn't really come together in terms of a marquee starting pitcher that would have been traded. I mean, I don't know how attainable Kyle Gibson would have been. I feel like that would have been a really good addition, even though he's, he's definitely having a really great year with the Rangers who knows if we'll, we'll for sure keep that up with the Phillies. But that was a guy I kind of thought like they really should have tried to get just because he was having such a great season. And Trevor Williams is like, fine. I, I don't know if, he hasn't even pitched yet. He's still in AAA because they actually have five starters now for the first time in a while. So I, I guess thinking about that, do you expect, I, I guess it's really hard to say because none of us know how like Syndergaard's rehab is going for hundred percent. Or I, I guess, do you expect like 
any of these players that are currently injured, you know, DeGrom, hopefully he's back soon, but like DeGrom, Lindor, and I guess Noah Syndergaard, like which of them do you think will, I don't know, either be back soonest, hopefully DeGrom, I would think, but, or have the biggest impact for the rest of this year? Yeah, I think, I think Syndergaard and DeGrom are the big two, right? That you, that you have the question marks about and, and you wonder about. And I can't give you a good answer on that. I, I know there's certainly optimism that, that Jake can come back and, you know, at some point in September and, and be what he was. But now that these things have piled up for him, you certainly wonder, you know, what's going to happen when he gets on the mound for the first time. Is he gonna, because he has been consistently saying, and there's no reason not to believe him, that he's felt good. You know, he's, he's taken this time off from throwing. He's felt good. And then he gets on, he starts to let it loose, and he doesn't feel good anymore. So as much as you could have that optimism now, until he actually gets out there and, and throws a bullpen session and throws three bullpen sessions and throws live VP and goes into his rehab starts in the minors, uh, you know, there's really just no guarantee with him at this point. So it's hard to have optimism there. And then Noah Syndergaard, you're talking about a guy who has not pitched in two full years. Uh, so to think that he can come in and just kind of be a member of the rotation down the stretch, I think is asking a lot. I think you're much more likely to get uh, the type of guy who can maybe come out of the bullpen and be a factor for you there and you know, give you a hundred, uh, give you a, an inning max effort throwing a hundred. And, and that could be really interesting down the stretch if you're playing meaningful games, but you got to get to that point where you're playing meaningful games in September and potentially October. But that's why I, I agree with you, Elizabeth. I thought, I thought maybe they would go after guys like Gibson a little harder and I think that's where I'm going to be very curious, even beyond this trade deadline into the next offseason. We know that this ownership is different than the last ownership. We know that they're willing to spend, they're willing to do things, but they've also spoken very often and very frequently about wanting to build something sustainable. And to them, that often takes the form of not overpaying for guys. Kyle Gibson is a great example because he's a guy who I think around the baseball community, a lot of people thought he was having a first half that was just, really beyond what he is and that doesn't mean he's not useful and that doesn't mean a contending team can't purposely overpay for a guy like that you look at this past offseason and you know the Mets drew kind of clear lines in the sand of what they thought George Springer was worth of what you know they thought JT Real Muto was worth versus James McCann and that's not to say they weren't willing to spend they were clearly willing to spend but they were also clearly playing things a little closer to the vest than I think people thought maybe that quote unquote drunken sailor Steve Cohen would do. So how does this manifest itself going forward? Are they willing to kind of push their chips in the middle? They weren't necessarily last off season. They weren't necessarily at this trade deadline. What does that look like going forward? I think is, is something really interesting to watch. Yeah. And I agree with you about uh, Steve Cohen and yeah, all that drunken sailor talk. And a lot of people thought he was going to spend like a maniac. And I think it's smart to go with more of an approach like this. Cause like you said, you want, you want something that's sustainable. You don't want just want to win for a couple of years and then you're back at the bottom of the dumpster. You know what I mean? So hopefully, hopefully they get it right and they're able to build something. But um, I'd like to get into uh, the book you wrote with David Wright. So as many of our listeners know, uh, Anthony is a co-author on David Wright's memoir, The Captain. So um, I'd like to know kind of how that came together, how you guys both uh, decide to write this together and uh, yeah, what, what kind of started that? Yeah, David, I mean, I, I've known David since, I was an intern in 2007, so I've known David for 14 years now. And, you know, it was something I think throughout his career as I got to know him, I, I thought, you know, A, this is obviously a great player. B, is someone that I have enjoyed covering 
And it always had kind of had it in the back of my mind that if I was going to write a book, like what a perfect subject. And then as he started to kind of go through his injury issues, I kind of saw that uh, narrative arc kind of taking place. And so, yeah, we got to the end of his career and obviously it was an emotional end and it just made a lot of sense from my perspective. So I approached him and, and kind of told him that this is something I was you know, thinking about. And I, I remember his first response was like, he was truly like taken aback, honored. And I, I was like, you're a professional baseball player with a 15 year career. You've done so many things like this should not be the type of thing that humbles you, but, but it, that kind of speaks to the kind of guy that, that David is. So anyway, we, we, we kind of got to talking about it and um, we, he decided that he wanted to play maybe a little more active role in, in the process. So that's why we did it as a memoir first person from his point of view. And um, yeah, really made it kind of a hands-on experience in terms of we're talking hours of interviews that I did with him talking to everyone in his life from family, teammates, coaches, um, people that I knew already, people that I was meeting for the first time, all sorts of, you know, fun stories and things come out of that. Um, and David was an absolute pro throughout the process. He was just really easy to work with, good suggestions, good feedback, all sorts of things. So it was, it was really, for someone who had never done something like that before, uh, from my perspective, he made it very easy. Yeah. And so you mentioned that you've known him now for 14 years. And I, I guess as reporters, you do learn a decent amount about the players that you're covering. But what are some of the things or I guess one thing that you were kind of most surprised to learn about David Wright through this process? Or I guess an insight you gained that you really maybe weren't expecting going into the book writing process? Yeah, I think, um, you know, there's two things. One, I, I, because I had been there for most of his major league career, like you see that stuff on a surface level, you see, you know, what he's done in the games, you see, you've reported about him a million times, you know, what's going on for the most part. Uh, I did not really have that same base of knowledge in terms of his early life and, and the types of things. You knew the basic story about growing up in Virginia and growing up with all these other great guys who would go on to be major league baseball players and first round draft picks and all that. But you didn't really kind of, at least I didn't really understand that that wasn't coincidence that there were a bunch of really interesting factors in terms of some of the coaches and influences that he had growing up that led to that, uh, that led to the fact that uh, it wasn't just David Wright, it was Michael Kadire and the Uptons and, and Mark Reynolds and all these people coming up at the same time. Uh, so I thought just kind of getting into his early life was really cool. And, and then the other part is when the injuries did start to come for David and I was there, I was covering the team. I was covering every time David so much has moved during that point, but I didn't understand the depth of what he was actually going through on, on a physical level, like what his, he was putting his body through just to try and get back on the field. And I think once I got into that and really started picking his brain about that, and he was willing to talk about it more freely than he was when he was going through it. And, you know, talking to some of the people that he worked with, whether it was his, his back surgeon or his physical therapist, all these people, and you, you start to get a better understanding of like, just what he was doing to his body on a daily basis. And it was almost like shocking. Like, I can't believe you did this with no guarantees that you would ever even get on the field again, let alone be a good player again. And ultimately he, he, he never got back to being an impact player again. So it was, it was kind of eye opening just to see how much work, how much dedication he was willing to put into that stuff. And that I, I think can be inspiring to, to people who read the book in terms of just, um, just the value of good old fashioned hard work. It's a cliche, but it's, it's kind of true. Yeah. And I, I thought just like as a fan of, obviously we followed David Ray. David Ray was my favorite player growing up. And there's so many things you think, you know, but you don't, I mean, just from 
small things like how when Joe McEwen got released, how David Wright was, he was basically more heartbroken, I think, than Joe was just because I guess he would always, he would go to his house for dinner. He would ride to the stadium with him and that Joe McEwen was like a father figure to him. Um, the part about the, the GQ uh, article or with him and Jose Reyes and how uncomfortable he felt. And there's just so many great insights in the book that as a fan, you don't, you don't get to, to know, you're not privy to a lot of this information. You know what I mean? So kind of, when me and Elizabeth were talking about this and we thought we would kind of have an idea of most of the things that would be in the book. There's so many, so many things that you kind of just as a fan, you don't even think of that are like behind the scenes that whether it was sad, it was funny. It was, there was just a lot to kind of learn about him as the person. Cause we all know how great of a guy he is and what he did for this organization. But um, yeah, it was, it was kind of cool to get those small insights and I'm sure you kind of enjoyed uh, learning all those small things about him as well. Yeah, I, I made sure to put a section, uh, I think it's toward the end, about all the pranks that he has pulled over the years because he's, I don't think people realize that he's a notorious, um, a notorious prankster on top of everything. But it's, uh, yeah, he, he's definitely, I think like a lot of athletes, he, he could be maybe a little shy during his playing career in terms of showing his personality, but, but that doesn't mean it's not there. I guess kind of on the book-related topic, is there another current Mets player that you would love to write a book about? Yeah, that... Um, People ask me, like, what's your next book going to be? What's your next book going to be? And, and I, I don't know. It's something that I probably will always have in the back of my mind, but I don't know if there's someone on the current team that I would, I would profile or work with in the same way. Maybe there is, maybe there's not. I mean, I think when you look at the current team, obviously Jake is the one that stands out because he is something that we've never seen before in terms of just his ability, not just his ability, but the way that his career has gone, the way he has um, – the way he has developed from being just kind of like an average prospect to the greatest pitcher. Really, when you look at it on the balance, maybe in, certainly in baseball today, but he's doing things that we've never seen before in a hundred years of this sport. So um, that's an interesting guy to me, but I, I think um, we'll see. I'll put it that way. We'll see. There's, there's definitely um, to give you an example, David, you know, it was something that, while I knew early in, in my career, early in his career, that is something in the back of my mind, a million factors have to come together for it to work out in that way. And, and in David's case, it did. So we'll see. Maybe I write another book in, in about someone or about some other topic in five years. Maybe I do it in 20 years. Uh, maybe I never do it again. I'll keep you guys posted if, if we find another project. Yeah. Very alertly paying attention. <laughs> for, our, for our listeners who haven't got to read the book, it, it really, I'm not just saying it's because you're here. It's, it's a great read. I mean, it's, it's an easy read and you, you learn a lot of stuff. So if, if you guys haven't got out to, to get it and read it yet, I suggest you do so. It's awesome. But uh, Anthony, before we let you go, uh, we'd love to know kind of, so obviously you've had a very accomplished career to this point, but is there anything that you hope to do in the rest of your career that you haven't gotten to do yet? Like, is there anything that's on your mind that you're kind of itching to do? Well, I've never written uh, a World Series winning game story. So I think that's, you know, that's kind of an obvious one. And, you know, people ask all the time, like, do you root for the Mets? Do you... and, and the answer to that truly is no. It's, it's not, you, ha you do have to stay objective in this job and you, and, and that's actually can be pretty easy to do, I've found. But that being said, when the Mets win, there's so much more excitement around the team. And when you're writing winning games, like no one wants to read my ninth loss in 11 games game story if you're a Mets fan because it's it's depressing I get it so when the team does better you know there's more eyeballs there's more interest there's all this type of stuff and I think every beat writer covering a team kind of the pinnacle of that is yeah covering your team in the World Series covering your team winning the World Series we all kind of got a taste of that in 2015 but to cover a team that's able to get over that hump and, and complete it I think would be a really cool thing 
sports writers kind of joke about or half joke about, you know, having your, your leads written for big events like that. Like, what would you, what would you write if the Mets won game seven of the world series? And I, I, I'm not that type of person. I don't free write things in that way very often. I think it's, you want to see what happens unfolding in front of you and then write about it as it happens. But I think that would be a really cool thing to kind of go down that road and see what it's like to, to really cover a champion. I've, I've been to world series. I've covered world series winning teams in their clubhouses and things like that, but not a team that I know intimately is covering them every day. That would probably be your most viewed story of all time. (laughs) So not that you haven't had really successful stories online, but I guarantee if the Mets do eventually win the world series in my lifetime, which hopefully happens, I will definitely be rereading that over and over because you know, at this point we're all, we've, we've heard all the stories. The Mets only have two world championships in their history. So we, we celebrate these anniversaries every so often we trot out the players that we all know and love, but it would be really great to kind of create create a new championship legacy because we're so used to 86, we're so used to 69. And it'd be great if some incarnation of the current team is part of that like immortal legacy because there's guys in like the 69 team that were, or the, even the 86 team that were utility players, but are now beloved and will be beloved forever because they were part of a champion. I think there's something about winning World Series that really just creates this immortal legacy that... I'm sure all the reporters involved would, would love to be part of. So I guess we'll wrap with that. It's really a really high note. I hope maybe the Mets will get there this year. Who knows? That would be amazing. So we just want to say so thank you so much, Anthony, for being on with us. I really enjoy reading all of your Mets, Mets coverage. I think you do a very good job of providing, I think taking the fact that the Mets are just such an entertaining team. I really feel like you integrate that well into your writing. So I want to thank you for that. And, and yeah, I guess let us, let our listeners know, I'm sure a lot of them follow you on Twitter already, but if there's any, any plugs you want to do for either your own work or, or the book, obviously, or anything else you're working on, um, let our listeners know before we wrap up. Sure. Well, thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you, Jake. Um, yeah, you can find me on, on Twitter at Anthony DeComo. The book, The Captain with David Wright is available at bookstores. It's everywhere. It's Amazon, Barnes and Noble, wherever you want to buy your books. I always encourage people to go to their local bookstores if they can. And yeah, that's it. We'll see. It's stranger things have happened. I'm just stranger you know... things have happened, and the talent is there. So I just because the Mets kind of look dead in the water as we sit here in mid-August. It is mid-August, and a lot can happen. They're still very much within striking distance. So keep the faith, and and you never know. Yeah, it feels like it's the last week of September, but uh, yeah, we got a long way to go. But uh, yeah, so that'll do it for this episode of Cohen's Corner. As always, you can find Elizabeth on Twitter at NYMFan97. You can find myself at Giblin underscore Jake, and you can follow the podcast at Cohen's Corner Pod. So thank you, Anthony, and thank you to our listeners for listening to us, and uh, let's go Mets.